And thank you for picking up those baby bottles starting next week. We've been doing this for many years, and it's an opportunity for us to be a blessing to the new pregnancy, the new uh, crisis pregnancy center downtown, and it's uh, a way to bless them and to bless a lot of ladies. And so I hope that you'll help us with that. Beginning next week, you just pick one up, you keep it for the entire month, we'll tell you what Sunday we need you to bring it back. You fill it up with checks, or you fill it up with cash, or you put coins in it, and uh, everything comes back and is given to them. Take your Bible with me this morning and open to the book of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And I want to read again verses 1 through 9 as we continue our study of the life of Noah and about walking with God. Chapter 6 verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I had made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Let's pray together. Father, today I come before you and I acknowledge my inadequacies. And I pray that where I am weak, that you will be strong. Lord, the message today, I pray that it will be well received, but I fear that for some it might not. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, cause us to recognize that Christianity is more than just a religion where we go through the ceremonies and we do the rituals and we walk away and it's no longer a part of our lives after that or at least it's not a central preeminent part of our lives afterwards. Lord, help us to recognize that you want to walk with us every single day of our lives. You want us to walk with you every single day of our lives. Noah did that in an extremely wicked world. He couldn't do that until he first heeded the warnings. And he found grace through faith in the eyes of the Lord. But today, Lord, we will not be able to walk with you if we don't grasp the truth that I'm about to present. And I pray, God, that you will help me in spite of my inadequacies. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
Most of the time when I come to the pulpit, I come with absolute confidence that the message that God has given to me is what he wants for this hour. And I come with a feeling of assurance that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to hear it and a lot of people who are going to heed it. And it's going to change their lives. It's going to bless their lives in some way. There are other times, though, when I come as a pastor to the pulpit, just as confident that I have the message that God wants for the hour, but I don't feel as assured that the people who are going to hear the message the way they should hear it. And the fact that they might miss the message or misunderstand the message and thus fail to be changed by that message. Today is one of those days. I have absolutely no uncertainty about what is to be the message of the hour. My question is, will you hear it? Will you mishear it? Will you hear what God is really saying? Will you really let God speak to your heart this day? And will you then heed it? Will you put it into practice? Because it's an absolute essential if we're going to walk with God what we're going to talk about for a little while this morning. We talked about the wickedness of the day in which Noah lived. And in spite of that wickedness, Noah walked with God. It doesn't matter how evil a day may be that we live, we live in. We can walk with God. We look secondly at the warning. God said, I'm going to destroy the earth. And only Noah and his family heeded that warning. And The result was that Noah, by faith, came, put his faith in God, and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You can't walk with God if you don't know God. If you know God, you can walk with God, but if you don't know God, you can't walk with God. But the day goes a step deeper. Today goes a step further because now we move beyond those who don't know God and who need to know God to those of us who know God and whether we will do what we need to do in order to be able to walk with God. For me to take you on this journey, and it's going to be a journey from the Old Testament here all the way into the New Testament in a few minutes, I need to go back and I need just to make sure you understand what's going on in these first six chapters, really eight chapters, but these first six chapters of the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were created by God. They were the direct creation of God. They did not evolve from some lower life form. Life in the beginning was created by the Almighty God. We were made male and female. God brought Adam and Eve together, and they became husband and wife, and ultimately they will produce family But God created life in the beginning, and God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, this incredibly beautiful and magnificent garden from which they could have had anything they wanted except for one thing that God had forbidden. Eve was tempted, and Eve was deceived. And she partook of the forbidden fruit. She disobeyed God, and the result was that she was plunged under sin. 
Adam then follows his wife into that sin. And he is plunged under the curse of sin. And the result is that now Adam and Eve are cursed, and this curse goes beyond just simple things that you might think we could get over. There was a curse on the ground where it had been this beautiful, lush garden. It was now going to produce thistles and thorns and underbrush and all the things that destroy the things that we want to keep and enjoy. It was going to involve, as a consequence of their sins, the pain of childbirth. There was going to be difficulty in childbirth. There was going to be conflict in marriage because one would want to rule over the other and the other rule over. And there would be conflict in marriage. They would be put out of the garden. They would no longer be allowed in the garden lest they partake of that forbidden fruit and they would live forever in these sinful, cursed human bodies. And then, as a result of all of that, they are experiencing these consequences over and over again. And those consequences are passed down to everybody who comes from Adam and Eve, which, if you didn't hear me from the beginning, means everybody. We have all been plunged under the same curse of sin. As by one man, sin entered into the world, Paul said, and so death passed upon all men. By one man's sin, all have been made sinners. By one man's sin, now we all die. And the ultimate result of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was death. It's death. They're physically going to die. Spiritually, they died instantaneously. Physically, they will die over a period of time. And that sin is the real problem with humanity today. We deal with every other imaginable thing. It's like treating the weeds that you pull up from off the surface of the ground, but you never deal with the root problem. The root problem that all mankind has is a sin problem. And you don't solve that problem by simply pulling off the flowering part of it that's above the ground. You have to deal with what's beneath the ground if you're going to deal with the real problem of mankind. When you look at the world in which we live and you see the things that I see and watch what I'm watching, we're all seeing it together, you say, what in the world is going on? It's pretty straightforward and simple. It's a little three-letter word. It's S I. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And because we were in Adam and Eve, all of us now have and have inherited this sin nature. And all of us are sinners, not only by birth, but we are sinners by choice. And all of us have that propensity toward evil, even if we don't exercise that propensity to its fullest. Sin has consequences. Be sure your sin will find you out. It is cyclical. It ultimately comes around. And it will affect you. And it will be, there will be a price that you have to pay. 
There, is all, there are always consequences to sin, and Adam and Eve were the first to experience those consequences. When you get to chapter 4, you find that Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. They were told to bring the sacrifice that God wanted from them. Abel brought the sacrifice that God required. Cain did not. They knew what the sacrifice was because God had performed the first sacrifice, creating the coats, the garments that Adam and Eve would wear. They knew what was required. And Abel brought the animal sacrifice, and Cain brought the work of his hands. And God accepted the offering of Abel, and he rejected the offering of Cain. And the result was that Cain becomes angry, and now sin is spinning, beginning to spin further out of control, because Cain rises up one day, and he does what? He has the very first murder in the Bible. He kills his own brother. If you go on looking through chapter 4, you discover that there is a lineage, a genealogy that is given of Cain. It's a short one because Cain is not the primary character. But you see a short genealogy of Cain and then ultimately his genealogy just sort of falls off the pages of the Bible and you don't really read that much about him. You can see the effects, but you don't really read that much about him anymore. But part of what you read in the lineage of Cain is that one of his sons takes not one wife, but he takes two wives, and he introduces for the first time polygamy, multiple wives. Why? Because Adam and Eve sinned, the consequences fell on them, those consequences fell on Cain and Abel, those consequences are being worked out now in cables, in, in this man Cain's <laughs> Cain and Abel. This man, Cain's life, they're being worked out in Cain's life, and one of his own descendants takes multiple wives. And that pattern just goes on. When you get to chapter 5, you're following the genealogy now, no longer of, of Cain. Abel is dead. You're following the line uh, the genealogy of the other son that we're told about from Adam and Eve. By the way, Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters. But we're told about the other son. His name was Seth. And the promises that God had made about a coming redeemer were going to be, that made to Adam and Eve were going to be made through this son, Seth. In, in chapter 5, you begin reading, not the genealogy of Cain, you begin reading the genealogy of Seth. There's 10 generations in that genealogy. And while you don't see sin as prominent as you did in Cain's genealogy, it doesn't show up right from the very beginning in the same way it showed up in Cain's genealogy. When you follow the genealogy of Seth, you find out that that same sin principle is at work even from the line of Seth. One of the ways you can see it is how everyone in that genealogy, how they end, every one of them, it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died eight times, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. 
The only one that didn't die was Enoch who walked with God and he was not for God took him. But all of the others say he died. Why? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. And so you see sin working its way out. In the line of Cain, it's almost immediate. You begin to see the effects and the consequences traced all the way back to Adam and Eve and how that sin gets worked out in the genealogy of Cain. But you see it in the genealogy even of Seth, what will be the godly line. And there is this constant degeneration that takes place over the years in the genealogy of Seth until you get down to a man by the name of Noah. And the generations that were living in that day were all so incredibly wicked and violent that there's only one man left standing. And that man is Noah. What are you telling me? I'm I'm just reminding you that sin is never progressive, it is always digressive. Sin is never constructive, sin is always destructive. And sin is prevalent in all of us, it is a part of all of us, and sin left unfettered can become some of the most gross things you can possibly imagine. And that's exactly where we find Noah. Everybody but Noah had fallen away. He's the last man standing. And the influence that Noah has is over his wife and over his sons and their wives. And they listened to Noah. They found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And they were saved through the ark that God provided for them, that He had Noah build so that they could enter in, and God closed them inside. Their lives were saved as a result of being on that ark. But nobody else, nobody else listened to Noah. But Noah was left in that day as a witness to that generation. As there was wickedness, As there was a warning, there was a witness. And that witness was the man Noah. He witnessed in at least four different ways. We're not going to talk about them today. But he witnessed by his life, by the way he lived his life. It says in verse 9 that he was a just man, meaning he was righteous. He had found grace by faith in the eyes of the Lord, but that had worked its way out in a life of righteousness, doing what God said to do, living God's way. He was perfect in his generations, meaning that he was blameless. He wasn't sinless, but he was blameless. He was sincere. He was genuine. If he failed, he confessed it, and he got up and he kept moving. And people saw the sincerity of this man, Noah. And it says that Noah walked with God. This man who had been left as a witness to a wicked generation was God's instrument for proclaiming to that generation that there is grace if you're willing to receive it by faith. He witnessed by his life. He witnessed by his work. Can you imagine every day he gets up and he goes out? This ark is about a football field and a half in length. 
Every board that he puts up, every floor that he builds inside, every room that he partitions off inside that ark, every little bit of pitch that he puts on the cracks in that ark so that it will be sealed, so that the water cannot get in, all of that is a witness to the generation that are watching him. They've never seen an ark before. As a matter of fact, they've never seen rain or water like they're about to see. And every day he goes up and he begins working on that ark and every day it was a witness. He was a witness through his life. He was a witness through his work. He was a witness through his message. Second Peter chapter 2 says that he was a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness. The word for preacher is the word herald. He's the official who comes on behalf of somebody who's of nobility, who has a message to be delivered, who finds a particular spot, lifts up his voice, and he announces whatever it is, the news that they're supposed to be given. He's a herald of righteousness. I do not believe, even for a moment, that what Noah was doing in his message was like Westboro Baptist Church. That to me is despicable. But I believe he stood there, maybe on a street corner, maybe right outside the ark, maybe from house to house. He stood there and he proclaimed the righteousness of God in the need of mankind to prepare themselves for the coming judgment. You've got to be on the ark, and the only way to be on the ark is to put your faith in Jesus, put your faith in God, and be in, find the grace that I have found by putting my faith in God. And he announced it again and again. He was a witness. He was a witness not only through his life and through his work and through his message. He was a witness through his worship, through his worship. You remember after the ark is built and everybody's on the ark and the waters have risen and it's been nearly a year and now the waters are abating and the ark comes to a rest and they open the door. What is the first thing they do? What is the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark? He offers a sacrifice to God. You think that was his first sacrifice? Just like Abel had offered a sacrifice, he knew what was required of God. And after a year of being on that ark, he gets off, and in his worship of God, he offers the sacrifice that he knows is the sacrifice that God accepts. And do you think that that just started when he got off the ark? No, no, no. He was already worshiping God before he got on the ark. And there must have been those moments when he went and he offered an animal sacrifice remembering what God required and in his message and in his worship, he reminded people there is a God in heaven. There is a righteousness that he requires. The only means of experiencing his righteousness is by faith in God. And in that faith comes his grace to us. He gives to us what we do not rightfully deserve. And this man living in this wicked world was a man who was living as a witness for God in the midst of all of that wickedness. And I say to you, in the world in which God has left us, if you want to walk with God, 
You have to be a witness to the world that's around us. But you cannot be a witness if you are spotted by the world in which you're called to be a witness. Please hear me. James chapter 1, verse 27. Keep yourselves unspotted from or by the world. In other words, Noah, as a witness of God, living in that wicked generation, knowing what was the warning and the judgment that was going to fall, lifted up his voice and proclaimed the message, worshiped God through the offering of sacrifices, went out every day building that ark just as God had told him to in obedience to God, living out his life in a righteous, a just manner, demonstrating to his own generation that God makes a difference in my life. And he did not let himself become sullied. He did not allow himself to become dirtied and putrefied by the world in which he was living. I don't know if you hear what I'm saying. You can walk with God in a wicked world. Noah did it. You can't walk with God until you heed his warning and you come to know him by faith and experience his grace. But you cannot walk with God you cannot walk with God and allow worldliness to spot your life. To take on the ways, the values, the ideals of the world around you. Turn with me for a moment, if you will, back to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. A lot of times when I'm conducting the Lord's uh, Supper service, I quote this verse of Scripture, chapter 1, verse 7. But I want you to begin back in verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, you can't walk in fellowship with God and walk in darkness at the same time. Is that correct? You cannot walk with God in the purity that God wants in our lives and walk with this world in the degradation of the world around you. You can't do the, you can't do the, both, the both at the same time. In verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's with God and ultimately with his children. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, to walk in the light is to live in his presence. It's to maintain fellowship with the Lord. It is to be open to him so that his light can expose in our lives areas of our lives that are not in tune with him, not right with him, so that we will ask God to cleanse us, ask God to forgive us, and we can go on living in that light, walking in that light. In other words, walking in the light is a little bit like this. When you were a child, you sometimes went out, and your mother probably told you don't get dirty, but you came back in dirty. And the light shows you the dirt. 
And the result was when the light exposed the dirt, you had to go wash it off. And if you didn't go wash it off and you went back out, you just added dirt on top of dirt on top of dirt. But the light kept exposing the reality, the light of God. We are to walk in the light of God so that he can expose by his light, his light those things in our lives that are not right with him and are not what they ought to be so that we can be cleansed and we can go on walking in the light. The blood of Jesus Christ washes away. It just takes it away over and over. That's what he goes on to say in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In other words, you don't have to ever walk out of the light. You can walk in fellowship with God. Consistent, constant fellowship with God by walking in the light and letting whatever God exposes be a means of, of you confessing to God what is wrong, where you have been spotted by the world so that you keep on walking in the light. And the blood of Jesus just takes those things away and keeps them from affecting your fellowship. It never changes your relationship, but it affects your fellowship, and he keeps taking them away. And he says the verse before, verse 9, and verse 8, and the verse after it, verse 10, he says, if you say you haven't sinned or you don't have sin at all, you're, you're, telling that, you're saying that God's a liar. The fact of the matter is, living in this world, sometimes we get dirty by the world that we're living in, but when the light of God exposes it, we don't try to hide it. Let's cover it up. We'll make sure nobody sees it. We let the light expose it. We let our mouths confess it. And God cleanses it, and we keep on walking with God. We keep on walking in fellowship with God, and we walk in the light. That's how you walk with God. You walk in the light, but when you stop walking in the light and refuse to confess what the light exposes, you stop walking with God. You cannot walk... You cannot say that you have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. You can't do it. And yet, all of us struggle with this. We used to call this, when I was a younger man and heard it preached, we used to call this worldliness. Now we have just adopted worldliness right into our churches. And we just accepted the worldliness. We've decided to allow the dirt to remain. And we'll just make sure we talk a lot about God's grace and God's mercy and not ever deal with the dirt that's in our lives, the spotting by the world in our lives, the worldliness that's in our lives. And the result is that rather than walking with God as God would have us to walk with him, we're walking in the darkness, not in the light. Do you know that the world around you is not your friend? Not in walking with God, it is not your friend. To turn a page over to 1 John chapter 2, please just notice it for a moment. Verse 15. 1 John 2, 15. John writes and he says, Do not love the world. That's exactly what Noah was obeying. I don't love the world around me. I love God. I'm going to be the witness of God in the wicked world in which I live through my worship, through my message, through my life. 
through my work. I'm going to be the witness of God in this world. I'm not going to let this world spot my life. And John says, don't love the world. Now, you understand when the word world is used, there's at least three senses to the word world. One is the sense of people. And we know that's not what he's talking about because God so loved the world. The second sense is creation itself, talking about the mountains and the oceans and the rivers and the beautiful places that you can go and you can see right here in our own state, the beautiful places where you can go and you can see. That's not what he's talking about either. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, now listen carefully, the love of the Father, an objective genitive, meaning that the love for the Father is not in him. You can't walk in darkness and walk in light. You can't walk in worldliness and walk with God. If you're going to walk in the light, you've got to be willing to live in his presence and let the light expose the dirt that's in your life, things that shouldn't be there. You cleanse it. You go before God and confess it, and God forgives us of it. His blood washes it away. Our fellowship is maintained, and we go on walking in the light. But if we stop doing those things, we stop walking with God. We become like the world around us. And we lose, and here's the key word to remember, our distinctiveness as Christians. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If he's not talking about people and he's not talking about the creation itself, the beauty of the creation itself, he's talking about the world, the system of the world. He's talking about the fame and the fortune. He's talking about the pleasure and the prestige and the power and the popularity. He's talking about materialism and secularism and atheism and all of these other isms. He's talking about the world's values and the world's morals and the world's philosophy and the world's system. He's talking about the world's outlook Do we understand that the world in which we live is not our friend? The world in which we we live wants to make our lives dirty. It wants to spot our lives because then they can keep us, maybe not out of heaven, but they can keep us out of fellowship with God. They can keep us from walking with God. And if he can keep us from walking with God, he can hinder the witness of God in the world in which we live. Because people look and say, well, he's no different than I am. She does what I do. They live the same way we live. There really is no distinction in the way we go about living our lives to the way they're living their lives. There is little difference in the way we're living our lives. You understand what he means here? What he's saying here? Do you realize that this world is a place that does not love God? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John 3, 1. Look at the last phrase. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. This world is a system in rebellion to God. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. 
a system in rebellion to God. You are of God, little children, have overcome, have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. It's a system in rebellion to God. This is the world will not look at all these, but it lies in the power of the wicked, of the wicked one. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is the world where the realm, it's the realm of false prophets. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 3. Now, this is a world that hates believers. And yet, for some reason, we feel it necessary to try to Blend in with the world as much as possible rather than to stand out from the world. I mean, our eyes become so adjusted to the darkness around us that we no, even, no longer hardly even recognize or, or understand that we're actually walking in the darkness rather than walking in the light. We're so used to hearing the cursing and watching the sexuality and seeing the values of the system around us that we become adapted to it. And it's just the way the world is. you got to accept the world the way it is. And we stop living as if God has called us out of that world. And the result is because we're not living as God has called us out of this world, we're not walking with God. And because we're not walking with God, we lose the witness of God in the world in which we live. He goes on, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now listen, verse 17, the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever to walk with God. Not only must you know God in salvation by faith through grace, by grace through faith. You not only must know God, but to walk with God, it's got to become your constant desire that the light of God will expose the dirt of my life where the world has affected me in some way and then confess it, wash it away, God's blood, wash it away so you can keep walking with God. And in walking with God, you become that witness of God that he desires you to be. In other words, we're supposed to be in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world. There ought to be a different way that we worship. There ought to be a different way that we live our lives with priorities and preeminence that's given to Jesus Christ. There ought to be a different way that we talk. There ought to be a different way that we feel about the things of God. There ought to be a difference. A distinction. Not that makes us better than anybody else. We're not better than anybody else. We're all sinners if you're a child of God, saved by the grace of God. We're not better than anybody else. But you can't be a witness and be just like the world in which you live. We have to constantly be watching for the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, as someone has said, 
is the desire to do something apart from the will of God. The lust of the eyes is the desire to have something apart from the will of God. And the pride of life is the desire to be something apart from the will of God. In other words, I'm just living my life for me and for myself. But this world is passing away. We get our children discipled in being the best at sports and the best at academics and the best at other things, but somehow we fail to disciple our children to be followers of Jesus Christ. We'd rather them have the accolades of the world than we had for them to live a life that is pleasing to the Almighty God. And the world just throws the dirt. We walk into the light and we don't like what we see. We'll get out of that light. We'll get over here in the darkness because I can't see it over here. And what happens? You stop walking with God and you stop being a witness in a wicked world. And don't, hear, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about legalism here. But we shouldn't be talking about license either. Somewhere between there is the working of the Spirit of God in the hearts of His children that says it matters how I live. It matters how I work. It matters how I worship. It matters. It matters what my message is. It matters. It matters. Because I want to walk with God. I want the intimacy of that fellowship Turn a few pages back to James chapter 4. Maybe I'll have to stop here when I get through. James chapter 4. Look at what he says, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Some translations only give one of those two, but it means both adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world, that's the system, that's the values, that's the ideals, that's the direction, that's the thinking of this world, that friendship with the world is enmity with God, it's hostile toward God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself hostile, the enemy of God. You can't befriend this world this world system and be the friend of God. You can't walk with God and walk in darkness at the same time. There are choices that everybody has to make. He goes on. We read those verses as if that's all that he has to say, but the rest of this passage is how this is accomplished. What's going on? He talks about don't be the friend of the world. If you're the friend of the world, you're hostile toward God. He says, or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, jealously? In other words, the spirit of God, like a spouse, is jealous for his or her spouse. God is jealous for all of our hearts. God is jealous for everything about our lives to be centered on him, that he will be first above everything. The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace. 
How are we going to deal with this? You say, well, I'm just going to pull up my bootstraps and I'm going to stop this, stop that. No, you're going to do it through the unmerited favor of the Almighty God. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God, resist the proud. Those that are trying to do and be what they want to do and be themselves, God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, if we're not supposed to be friends with the world because that's enmity and hostile toward God, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Do you realize that you're as close to God today as you want to be? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You, here's the word, double-minded. You can't hold on to the world and hold on to God at the same time. You either sell out to God or you sell out to the world, one or the other. And when you sell out to the world, you lose your walk with God. And when you lose your walk with God, you lose your witness for God. Now you're no different than anybody else. You're pursuing the same things everybody else is pursuing it in the same way that they're pursuing it, with the same attitudes, the same ideals, the same philosophy, the same understanding. You're doing it just like they do it. You can't walk in the darkness and walk in the light at the same time. He says, you got to stop being double-minded. You know what it means to be double-minded? It's, it's a word that literally means two soul, but it's the idea of doubtful or wavering or to stagger here and there, to hesitate, to have a divided loyalty. And, and maybe the best way for me to illustrate what I'm talking about, we're not supposed to be double-minded is to take you back to the Old Testament and, and just show you what the Old Testament says about double-mindedness or the opposite of double-mindedness. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all, no double-mindedness, with all your heart. In Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with, here's the word, all your heart. Or Proverbs 3, 5, we all quote it. We don't actually mean it, but we all quote it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not double-minded. The psalmist says it this way, Psalm 138, verse 1, I will praise you with my whole heart. Or he says it in 86, verse 11, he says, unite my heart. I don't want to be double-minded. Unite my heart to fear your name. Or in Psalm 119, verse 34, he says, I shall observe it. That's the law. I shall observe the law with my whole heart. Or he goes on. And he talks about those who have the loyalty to him, the loyal heart to God. If we're going to be witnesses in the world in which we live and we're going to make a difference in this world, it's going to require that we walk with God. And if we're going to walk with God, we've got to walk in the light and we've got to let God expose the I'm just, I'm just getting old, so just forgive my word. You choose your better word. The worldliness of our lives. 
where the world has infected us, where the world has sullied us, where the world has spotted us. Let the light expose it, and we get on our faces before God, and we say, oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God. And God washes it away. His blood washes it away. He cleanses it, all of it, every bit of it. And you stay in fellowship with God, and you keep walking in the light. You're in the light, and you're walking with God, and people start noticing, hey, there's something different about him, and there's something different about her. Not because you're dressed in a, in a burlap sack or because you've come in camel hair eating locust. But they notice there's something different about you because of the way that you live, the way you make your choices, the values by which you live, the things that you hold to that are true, the things you prioritize, the things that you're instructing your children, the things that if your children have walked away, you don't just give up on them and say, well, I don't want my children to feel distant, so I'm going to drift toward them. I have to do this, so... Give me another three minutes. Turn to James chapter 17. James chapter 17. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and ultimately he's praying for all of us who will believe because of the word of his disciples. Did I say James? I mean John. <clears throat> There's not 17 chapters in James. If you'll turn to Jude chapter 3 verse 4. Uh, John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. Hey, look, you come preach sometimes, see if you don't make a mistake now and then. <laughs> I don't write out my notes. This is, ex this is, a, this is a, as God gives it to me. In verse 11, he's praying to the Father, and he says, keep them, keep them. He says in verse 12, I have kept them while I've been here, but I'm about to leave Notice verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Oh, man, I don't like anybody to hate me. I sat down with my wife yesterday, and I said, I don't understand why they don't like me. I'm talking about people that should like me. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. That's not the answer. This is not about saturation, become saturated with the world. This is not about isolation, isolating yourself from the world. I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now listen, verse 16, they are not of the world. Do you hear that? You are not of the world. And when you're living like you're of the world, you've ceased living like a child of God. And all of us are guilty at times, including me. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We are not of the world. We are in the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. But don't let it stop there. We are in the world, but not of the world. But we have been sent 
to the world. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. In other words, the reason you're even still here, that when you got saved, he didn't call you right on into his presence, and you're not already in heaven, is because God left you here, a sent one, to be a witness in a wicked world. But you can't be a witness in a wicked world if you're not walking with God. And you can't walk with God if you're walking in darkness. I may be like I may be like Noah today. Nobody listened to him. Nobody heard him. When the door was closed in the ark, there were only eight souls on that ark. But let me tell you something. If I've got to win eight people, seven other people beside myself, if I've got to win seven other people besides myself, I mean by that finding grace through faith, if I've got to win seven other people, I can't think of seven more important people than my own family. And maybe I'll be like Noah. The door's open. Walk in. The door's open. Walk in. It's going to close. Walk in. And they turn a deaf ear. But they could not deny that they had seen somebody that was different to everybody else. They had no excuse. Nobody said about Noah. You know, Noah shows up at those movies, he streams them to his TV. Nobody would have said that about Noah, period. (laughs) Nobody would have said that. Noah, I saw Noah the other night. His car was pulled up to the bar. He was bellied up to the bar, and he was drunk as he could be. Nobody ever said about Noah, did you hear the words that he said? I can't believe it. Did you see Noah take something that didn't belong to him? Did you see Noah's attitude toward God? Why is he asking me to worship him on Sunday? Noah walked with God as the witness, the only, other than his seven relatives, the only witness in a wicked world world. And Jesus says that's exactly who we're supposed to be. So let me finish this way. I got a lot more to say. You did this when your children were growing up, especially when they got toward 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and they wanted to do something and you told them no. And they came back and they argued with you. I mean, respectfully argued with you. Maybe not a teenager, but respectfully argued with you. And they said, but mama or daddy, so-and-so, and his or her parents let them do that. And you said to your child, probably what we said to our children when we got asked those kinds of questions, something that goes like this. 
but your last name isn't Lemming. God's looking down at his church. We're losing a generation of young people to, are you ready? Worldliness. But let's not blame the children. It's mom and dad. That's where the problem is. Because mom and dad aren't walking in the light. They're not walking with God either. They're not much of a witness even in their own home. And they have forgotten. My name is Christ in the world. My name is an heir of God. My name is I belong to Jesus. And I will walk with God that I'll be a witness.